Okay, so tonight we want to have a conversation, a discussion about uh, the power you can have with language. Now, again, I use power in a very specific way here. I said power with, and the reason I'm specific in the way that I use my language with power is because right now there's a paradigm, philosophical paradigm being pushed in, a, in the official narrative of our culture that everything's about power. It's all power dynamics. But their, their use of that word is power over. Having power over someone, having power over something. I'm talking about having power with your language. Um, being able to have clarity in interpreting other people's language. Being able to structure valid assertions. Being able to structure grounded assessments and being able to recognize these things because this is how you can de divine the truth. Now, the truth isn't necessarily a destination. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but it is a journey. And having these tools, when you could easily pull apart someone's language to show this is just an ungrounded assessment, there is absolutely no fact here based on the structure of the language. This is a very easy task to do. However, it requires critical thinking. So to lay a foundation out for our conversation, I want to first put out there some ideas around consciousness, around the, the fac faculties of consciousness that we employ in our daily lives, but with our systems our educational systems, our, um, our media, our music, like literally there is a concerted effort to block off part of your consciousness and to trap you in another part of your consciousness. And this is why you see so little critical thinking in the world right now is because the, everything systematic has been gearing, programming us from birth to isolate ourselves within this one form of consciousness. Now I'm going to use, I, I will kind of move back and forth. I will use simple language so that we can have, so that you guys can understand what I'm talking about, but I'll also reference philosophical concepts. I'll, I'll reference uh, concepts of neuroscience so that if you want to do a deep dive on these concepts of consciousness and the mind, you will have some places to go, both in philosophy, in sciences, and things like that. So um, I'm going to use the terms, for simplicity's sake, of spotlight consciousness versus floodlight consciousness. And... You're very familiar with your spotlight consciousness. It kind of handles almost all of your day-to-day -day activity with a little bit of that floodlight consciousness in the background kind of contextualizing everything. So what do I mean by that? Spotlight consciousness bits the world. It takes bites out of the world. It is very specific. It zeroes in on. It is laser-like focus. Whereas floodlight consciousness is kind of like a it's, a, it's a, it's a broad view. 
Okay. Now they, you're always using both, but in our current culture, we're being isolated and being moved to be in imbalanced between these two forms of consciousness where we rely very heavily on that spotlight consciousness and neglect and fail to maintain balance with that floodlight consciousness. Okay. Um, and other ways of looking at that, another way, if you, if you look at consciousness as a function of the brain, which I do not, I look at the brain as effect of consciousness as opposed to cause of consciousness. I'm not a me mechanistic materialist. I do not believe that we are, or our consciousness is that function of chemical reactions in the brain. However, you can actually, if you monitor the brain, you can see these two forms of consciousness and how they engage each other, how they work with each other in the way that you perceive the world. So the, the reason I use spotlight and floodlight is because the, the, the key concept is here is how you attend to the world. Where is your attention? See, spotlight is very, it's a very laser-like focus kind of attention. And the floodlight is, again, that broad kind of overview. It, it gives you context, okay? <clears throat> so that would be equivalent in, like, let's say, neuroscience to the right brain and the left brain. Uh, the right brain. Yeah, go ahead. Um, let me ask, uh, is, is spotlight something in which you can only focus on one thing at a time and floodlight consciousness would be something that could focus on multiple things at a time? Kinda. Like I said, they work together. Okay. You could look at that as, as, as it depends on what you call one thing. <laughs> so, uh, for instance, a word is one thing, a can of soda is one thing and you could look at it more as like how you're attending to the world so if i'm hungry and i want to eat it's that spotlight consciousness that allows me to focus in on food and get it into my mouth okay so again it's not that one's better than the other but i don't need any kind of context in that situation Whereas in a more complicated situation where there may be multiple elements, the floodlight consciousness, that right brain aspect is what kind of ties it all together. Okay. You have an overall understanding of all the disparate parts of something and their interrelationships with each other and how they all work together. Like if you're having a conversation with someone and you had no functioning right brain or no functioning flood light consciousness everything they said you would take completely literally because the context of what there's uh, that involved with what they're saying whether it be their body language their facial expressions their intonations none of that would be considered by the left brain right so you would take it absolutely literally so you can, you can't you can't find you, there's no humor there's no intuition if you operate strictly from that left brain, okay, or that spotlight consciousness. So the, the floodlight kind of ties things together, but you need the spotlight to kind of, like when I walk into my living room, my right brain or my floodlight, I know I'm in the living room, right? 
Whereas if I had no functioning right brain, I would be in this space. I focus, okay, there's a television, there's some carpet, there's a couch. Ah, I'm in my living room, right? <laughs> like, like, like I might be able to put it together if I, if I start to put all the pieces together, but that's not how, but even then I wouldn't necessarily be able to tie all those things together. It would still be isolated to there's a TV, there's a couch, there's some carpet, right? So it would be isolated elements and you, and you know that somehow they belong together, but you wouldn't be able to necessarily get them together, move them together, or understand their relationship to each other. So really okay. it's a lot like context to really understand the setting, the environment that the things are in and the collection of things together. Whereas the, the left brain or, or spotlight is focused on the, the you know, I guess the smaller stuff, the individual stuff. The, the right. Piece. But it's, it's more, it's more than that. Okay. So, so almost every day-to-day -day interaction that you have with the world involves both simultaneously. Okay. So you're never really like, only in left brain or only in right brain or only in spotlight or only in floodlight. They work together. They're always working together. It's just, we're beginning to, we see an imbalance in our culture and our society where it's being, uh, there's a hyper activity in that left brain. There's a hyper activity in that spotlight and there's a hypo activity within the floodlight. So there's so maybe, a, a maybe give me context. an example of that where, you know, if, if you had no, well, you just used the thing about the living room, but maybe like a real world type of thing where someone's, you know, at work and they're focused on something, but it's because they put so much emphasis on the left brain that they're not taking into account, you know, the, the context of the situation or something. Like when someone misses the joke, they're like, well, I don't get it because they weren't present right. the backstory. Right. Yeah. I'm, I've got a great example for you. Let me, let me finish my thought on where I'm going right now. And then okay. I'll, I'll circle back. Okay. Word. <laughs> okay. So the spotlight and the floodlight. So the floodlight again, gives us that kind of context kind of ties things together. The spotlight gives us detail, right? Um, but another way of looking at this um, is, again, how things are brought to being in our consciousness. So, for instance, a, a philosophical way of looking at this, if you look at Heidegger, would be that he has two concepts when you are, when something comes into being for you, like, it, let's say, a hammer, right? So this hammer, if you are let's say a seasoned carpenter, you know, you've worked for years as a carpenter, that hammer already has meaning that, that there's already a context. There's, there's all, all that's kind of already with the hammer. And so you engage with that hammer with what Heidegger would call ready to hand consciousness. Okay. Or presence. And so that ready to handness is that it's already got meaning. It's already like, it, it's already got, uh, a use it's already got associated uh actions with it like all that's tied up in your left brain like the, it's because the left brain is where the automatic happens right so you automatically associate with that hammer from the left brain because you've got all this experience and the the left brain is kind of built a map where hammer is on the map and it's already got meaning and use and all these other things right however 
If a person who's never engaged with the hammer, never seen a hammer, never seen hammering happening, they have a different sort of consciousness when this hammer comes into being for them. And it's what Heidegger would call a pre being present at hand. Okay. So it's this open curiosity about what is this thing? This is a, that's moving you into that right brain, into that floodlight consciousness. That's where possibilities, right? That's where you start to like, uh, try to understand something. It's the, 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 that floodlight is the beginner's mind. Okay. Um, in Zen, they would call that the, the Shoshin. Okay. Or yeah. Shoshin. All right. Yeah. The, the, the mind of the beginner, beginner's mind. And uh, it is a curiosity. It is an openness. You're not, it, it's, it doesn't have set meaning. It does not have set purpose. There's an openness. So you're in a, in a mode of discovery. You're in a mode of critical thinking about, well, what are the possibilities that this wooden handle with this metal heavy metal barb flat funny shaped top you know <laughs> you have no words for it so you're 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 in this very different state of mind with the hammer in that sense okay so now i'll bring it back to your question of like what's a real world example um and this is perfect because there's so many people nowadays who get caught up in the mindset that because they live in their left brain, right? They live in that spotlight consciousness so much that they don't recognize the distinction between themselves and another. And like I said, the, the left brain has a very high opinion of itself. It thinks it's the shit, but the right brain is very uncertain, okay? It does not live in knowing, you know? It lives in possibility. It lives in uh, what could be. It leaves in, it could be and both either or, whereas the, the spotlight, the left brain is all about either or, black or white, okay? So there's that distinction there between those two forms of consciousness. Now, if you have a master carpenter, right? And he's been a carpenter for 30 years, okay? Now, he has that, that presence to, right? That ready to hand consciousness with all his tools, the hammer, the saw, even the wood, right? He's, he's got this, he's, he's already got that left brain mapping of his tool set, the level, the square, the tape measure, all of it. Now you have an apprentice who's been doing it for two years. Now, he's been doing it for two years, so he's got this same kind of uh, uh, ready-to-hand consciousness with the tools. You know, he doesn't really have to think about using the hammer. He doesn't really have to think about the saw like he's got this ready-to-hand consciousness. It's embedded, ingrained in his left brain or his spotlight consciousness, the use of all the tools, okay? And he's even pretty competent with the tools, <clears throat> which you're having your a, a new house built or an addition built on your house. Who would you hire? 
Would you hire the master carpenter or would you hire the apprentice? Obviously the master. He's only Why? one. <laughs> because he's going to know he's going to do what I want him to do with the for the job. Yeah, but they but they have but who's the, the, his no, his millennial, his millennial apprentice believes he's just as competent and should in fact have the label of master and I should be getting paid the same. I can do everything he does. I've seen him build stuff. I can build those things. I know how to use all these tools. This is that entitlement sense that you have with the younger generations that comes out of that being locked into that left brain, being locked into that, that lack of context for life. Now, the reason you would hire the master is because, because of his right brain capacity, because he has this contextual view of a construction project that came with 30 years of experience that that apprentice does not have. The apprentice may be able to use a saw. I mean, a saw is not that hard to use. A hammer, not that hard to use. Tape measure, self-explanatory. <laughs> Level, like all these things are pretty, they're pretty easy to use. If you've been using them for two years, you could even consider yourself exceptionally competent with those tools. You could, like you could use a saw without cutting your fingers off. You know, you can use a hammer without, you know, busting up your hand. So you've got a competency with all the tools, but you lack yeah, that contextual view. You, you I, know, I've, all, I've got tons of experience with all of those hand tools and I've been doing it for my entire life, but I have never built a house and I feel right, right. totally incompetent to do so because I wouldn't know any of the ins and outs or tricks or you know things to watch out for. I don't know the process. Right. And so the, and this is also why, uh, can you mute when you're not on Gingy? I am getting feedback through your mic now. Um, so, and this is why in like in Zen Buddhism, they call that the monkey mind, right? That the, the left brain, the monkey mind is, it's an imit it's an imitator, right? The monkey imitates. Um, if you look into the work of, um, what's his name? Ian McGilchrist, he has a book uh, called The Master and His Emissary. And in that book, he, his, the monkey mind would be the emissary. You know, the, the, uh, the shin, shin, uh, Shoshin, the beginner's mind, would be the master. Okay, and the master has this overall context, you know, contextualized view of all the pieces and their inner workings together. Okay, so the, the, that is the foundation that we need for our discussion tonight because what's absolutely necessary in making distinctions in language of assertions and assessments is your capacity for critical thinking. And critical thinking is absolutely dependent on your ability to move into that right brain, to move into that floodlight consciousness, to move into the mind of the beginner, as opposed to assuming, presuming you have the answers, you know the answers. Um, because Brandon, that- maybe, uh, If you're up for it, maybe you could define what critical thinking is, because I feel like in your explanation, I just- made a connection that I hadn't before, which critically critical thinking is in, in the right brain side, um, kind of a, kind of a space that I see a lot of kids are in, but it's, 
it's developing the relationship with whatever the thing is and it's identifying its use and its function or maybe even its usefulness and you know it's it's in the discovery phase right well remember it's it's all about a balance it's all about a balance of these things and and the funny thing is um if you've got a functioning (laughs) left brain no matter how much you put your consciousness into that right brain or that floodlight consciousness you'll never be out of balance because the spotlight will just increase its capacity as you increase the capacity of the floodlight. However, if you're diminishing the floodlight and putting more attention and focus in, in, into the spotlight, you, that, can be, that can create an, a, a, a situation where you're out of balance. And we can see that playing out in society and in people's personalities. Okay, you see the imbalance. And like I said, it's being reinforced in the schools. Like in the schools, you're programmed to have the answer, right? They're not teaching you to think. They're teaching you to go home, read these pages, memorize these things. When I ask questions tomorrow, you raise your hand, you have the answer. That's all left brain. So they're programming you to operate out of that left brain. And then even music. See, what's lacking in popular music? Harmony, melody, right? They have very simple rhythms. The only aspect of music that the left brain gets is simple rhythm. Boom, 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 right? That's all they get. That's all the left brain gets. So by constantly listening to that music, what are you doing? You're engaging and exercising that left brain. Okay. And, and then even in the media, the media, how many times have you guys seen some of those videos floating around where it's all talking points, right? And every news station, every news anchor, they're all repeating the same talking points, right? So like on the quote unquote insurrection, how many times was the word, were the, was the phrase a threat to our democracy used by the news channels and by the news anchors? Threat to our democracy, threat to our democracy, threat to our democracy, threat to our, what are they doing? They're engaging that left side of your brain. They're making you take on the association of, you see this event here? This is a threat to our democracy. They're not, they're not, they're not asking you questions. You're not, you're not being engaged to think. They're programming the left side of your brain with these talking points. And that's popular culture. Popular culture is one talking point to the next. All the critical theories, it's all a bunch. It's just a series of talking points, right? It's about diversity and inclusion and equity. You know, you got white privilege, right? These are all just slogans. These are talking points. These are engaging the left brain. There is no thinking involved. There is no rationalization. There is no context. It's just about feeding and engaging that left brain, the know-it-all. And the left brain already thinks it knows it all. In fact, um, what they found when they've done research on shutting off parts of the brain, like they could uh, shut off the right brain, they could shut off the left brain. When they shut off the right brain, you know, the floodlight, 
people exhibit what's known as a, not, a, normally, not only do they exhibit aspects of schizophrenia, they also exhibit what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is they think they are so much more competent than they actually are. And they think they know so much more than they actually know. <laughs> okay. And this is a phenomenon of our entire culture. People think they know so much and they don't know shit. They know the talking points and they regurgitate the talking points, but they haven't actually thought any of it through because they're not engaging. They're not taking these talking points and questioning them. They're not bringing them into that floodlight consciousness and trying to fit them into some kind of a context, not trying to fit them into an overall understanding of how that thing relates to other things. It's become this isolated concept, just like insurrection, threat to our democracy. It's just boom, boom, boom. That People aren't thinking about it. They're actually watching the footage and thinking for themselves, what's happening here? It's automatic. They see any footage from that day and it's threat to our democracy, you know, or white supremacists, or, you know, there, there were probably at least three or four slogans that went with those events. And people have been programmed with those slogans. All that, it just comes out of the left brain. It just comes out of that spotlight consciousness automatically, okay? So does that kind of give you the real world example that you were hoping to hear? Yeah, for sure, I think you nailed it. Um, I am so curious as to what critical thinking is, because I think I've got a, uh, a misunderstanding about it, hearing you talk about it. What's okay, your... So what do you think, what do you think it is? Well, for me, critical thinking was taking in as much data and coming up with my own conclusions, basically, or at least a working theory. Maybe I don't land on a conclusion, but I've got something that, you know, probability works good for me. But what you're saying is it's almost like being more in a beginner space. Being yeah, you're, you're actually what you're what you just explained to me was the left the left brain's idea of critical thinking because it thinks it knows everything it's like oh yeah yeah yeah. just show just show me some data yep i know the answer <laughs> like that's how it operates it it automatically it's it's a it's a fiend <laughs> it's a fiend it needs to be right it's it's where the ego lives okay yep, that's so, yeah the ego lives in the left brain it lives in the spotlight consciousness so it's it's very much, uh, yeah, just give me some data and I'll know the answer. That's, the, the big, that's not the, how the, the beginner mind, right? The floodlight consciousness, that's not how it operates. It's perfectly okay with not knowing the answer. It's perfectly okay with c considering possibilities. It's perfectly so then, okay with being wrong. What would a balanced version of critical thinking where you're using an effective amount of left brain right brain combination what does that critical thinking look like it looks like being open and being in the questions of things you know it's about looking for relationships it's about understanding a context right so like for instance when i'm writing code okay and i come up and i come up to something where that you know i need something to occur within this application 
that I've never made happen before and that I'm not necessarily aware of anyone else making it happen before. So there's no like course for me to take. Now the left brain would want me to sit there and just start trying to write lines of code, forcing lines of code to try to get it to do what I want it to do. But typically when I come across that situation, what I do is I walk away from the computer and I start contemplating and I start thinking about possibilities and I start thinking about, well, what would the results be like and how might I get to those results? You know, so it, it becomes this, this openness, this beginner's mind to the application itself and this, or this module or the application or whatever. And then when I have that aha moment, right? that moment of clarity, that moment of Satori, like there, again, there's so many words and all the different philosophies and all the different sciences about that click that happens. Right. In fact, in psychology, they call it the aha moment, right. Where it's like, boom, yeah, got yeah. it. But then it's the left brain that writes all the code. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that's all built up in me. I don't have to, I don't have to ponder on how to write a, you know, an if then statement or a for loop or anything else like that's built in. Like I've, I've stored that in my left brain. So writing the actual writing of code is mostly happening through the left brain, but it's a supported by the right brain because the right brain is giving me the context of the entire application or maybe the context of that entire module. Because I start writing, you know, conditional loops and, you know, uh, uh, conditional statements and things like that in the code, they have to work with everything else in that code. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's not an isolated line of code. It's not an isolated function within the code. It's not an isolated loop. It is, there's a context to it all. So I would say that the left brain is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in that it's writing all the code, right? But the right brain is kind of watching over him going, okay, okay, yeah, that'll work, that'll work. Because it sees the whole picture. It knows that like, yeah, yeah, you want that there. No, 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 no. You got to put a conditional statement above that for loop before you start looping through those variables. You see what I'm saying? So it's like uh, the, the, the right brain, the floodlight is kind of like overseeing the project. And the spotlight is doing all the work. So in the sense of critical thinking, you're using both. You're not, you're not isolating one form of consciousness over another. You're, you're engaging both forms of consciousness to come to a conclusion, right? So you'll engage the right brain, you'll engage the left brain. But in, in our culture, because we've been programmed so heavily with being trapped in that left brain, being trapped in that spotlight consciousness that we actually have to come up with ways of engaging that floodlight consciousness, that, that part of our consciousness that, that sees the bigger picture, that, that, pull, that has context, right? You need to be able to engage that specifically for this conversation we're having now because we're about to talk about dissecting language and structuring our language so that we can create facts with our language we can create truths, we can move towards truth with our language, or we can deconstruct the language of others and find, is, it, is this valid? Is this factual? Is this an assertion 
Are they even making a statement that can be proven true or false? Or is this merely an assessment? And if it is an assessment, not because it's not that assessments have more or less value, but a grounded assessment is much more valuable than an ungrounded assessment. And you can have, you can ground two assessments that come to two very different judgments or opinions or conclusions about something, about the same thing, but one can be grounded more than another, you know? And if you can ground one more than another, then that is your, that is a better assessment than the one that's ungrounded or has very little to ground it. Okay. So let's talk about that. Um, real quick before we move on, um, what you're talking about sounds, as far as critical thinking, taking one quick step back, um, okay. sounds a lot like what Patricia was telling me about on Monday. She drew a distinction between um, knowledge and wisdom. And Patricia, I don't know if you're interested in talking into that. I know you had another um, call or something that, that expanded on that this week. Uh, but if you're if you're driving or busy, that's cool too. We can move on. I want to give you a spot to open up. No, thanks, Shiji. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, yeah, so Brandon, I was talking to Junji about beginner versus master, and then we went into knowledge versus wisdom. And for me, wisdom comes from that deep, from deep in my soul. And it's not just things that I've learned this lifetime. It's many lifetimes in the past. It's come through my family, my, you know, my ancestors, whereas knowledge is what I've learned thus far in this lifetime, which isn't much, by the way, but knowledge is, when I come from that wisdom is that space of beginner. And when I think I know something in regards to knowledge, it's very much outside of me and it it wants to prop me up into the master, if that makes any sense. But yeah, that's, that's what we were discussing. Yeah. I, and I can kind of tie that in, um, in that, like there's ask again, it's, it's not that we can clearly divide everything into spotlight or floodlight. A lot of concepts like your concepts of knowledge and wisdom kind of live in both places. You know, um, for instance, you can't articulate your wisdom without the spotlight. However, you don't have feelings about your wisdom in the spotlight. So you must go into that beginner's mind to have that quote unquote gut feeling or that intuition. Like that's all part of that. That's all part of that right brain. That's all part of the floodlight consciousness where intuition the feelings around quote unquote information that all happens in that part of the consciousness. Um, and knowledge can kind of be, can, can exist in the left brain. It can exist in the spotlight, right? Like, so for instance, if I say what's two plus two, not many of you are going to have to sit back and wander back into the right brain and into your floodlight consciousness and contemplate two plus two. Right, you could just spit out at some point. (laughs) You could just spit out four, right? It's it's rote, it's automatic, it's built in, and that is a form of knowledge that's part of the map that your left brain is drawn of the world, you know. But that's the limitations of the left brain. That's the limitations of the spotlight consciousness. Is it's just a map, you know? It's not the terrain. 
So it's just a symbolic representation of your reality. And it doesn't on the map, it doesn't necessarily give you all the details and connection points of everything on the map. It's more like a menu. <laughs> or just a bunch of shit listed out. And you don't really see how any of it's connected if you are if you remain only in the left brain. So it that so there's knowledge there as well. But in order to bring pieces of knowledge together in a in a holistic kind of way, you will need the other side of that brain as well. So you'll need the right side. You'll need that floodlight because it can tie pieces of knowledge together in a bigger picture. So you can see in that in that scenario when we're talking about knowledge and wisdom, it's really it can be a function of both. I would say with your explanation of wisdom that is deeper on the side of the floodlight consciousness of the beginner's mind. Definitely. But even if you, let's say you were going to synthesize new knowledge, that would have to happen on the right side. Because, you know, if somebody said, you know, what's, uh, what's 12 times 13? Now, you might not just have that memorized. You might actually have to, okay, wait a minute. I got to do math right here. So you might actually have to synthesize some knowledge right there. You know, like 12 times 12, you might have, it's, oh, it's 144. And they're like, okay, uh, 144 plus 12, 156, <laughs> question mark. Um, so it, it's, it's your synthesizing knowledge, which required kind of both sides there, you know, um, because the, the concepts, the, the context of, of, of the process of multiplication needs both sides to happen because you didn't have 12 times 13 memorized you may have never, nobody's maybe ever asked you that. So it's not just sitting in the left brain as like, boom, fact, got it, you know. Um, but, in, but even though the left brain is very procedural, I would say the left brain is where algorithms are being executed, okay? So anything algorithmic, uh, procedural, relies heavily on the left brain. But the right brain has to kind of give you the framework of in which that algorithm operates. So like there's a general framework for what we call multiplication, right? And so the right brain is there, but not doing a whole lot when you're figuring out 12 times 13. But it's present. And that's in right there, I would call that the synthesis of knowledge. So knowledge isn't necessarily had to have been told to you. You can take things from what you call wisdom. You can take things from what you've called knowledge that you were taught by others that you've, you know, read or you've seen or you've been told or whatever. And you can actually take different parts of knowledge and synthesize knowledge. And again, but that requires this critical thinking that requires that right brain. It requires that beginner's mind. It requires that floodlight consciousness. They must work together. Now, because you're, you're still going to be focusing in on elements when you're synthesizing new knowledge. So you're using both. So again, I don't want anyone to hear in this conversation that one is better than the other, but you need both all the time. However, in our culture that we're currently in, because of our programming, our educational systems, our media, our music, everything else, 
we need to exercise using that right side. We need to get into the practice of engaging that beginner's mind. Create that nice middle spot where they're balanced, they're working together, and they're effective. And for me, it feels like there's a sweet spot that I can get into sometimes where I, I know what I know, but I'm also learning and open to being wrong. It's like what I know is working for right now, but it's always in the constant flux and, and moving forward. I don't know if yeah. that's, that would consider a yeah. good balance. But... Right. And, and, and that's an interesting concept that you brought into there. I know what I know. I know. Maybe you know what you know. Maybe you don't know what you don't know. But the left brain absolutely does not know what it does not know. That's why it thinks it's so fucking smart. <laughs> it really thinks it knows everything because it doesn't know what it doesn't know. It's like, boom, I got it all. You know. And again, that's functional because when we need to react quickly to something, that happens in the left brain. You know, um, if there's a threat that just appears before you, whether it be a wild animal or a horrible spider of some kind, a <laughs> snake on your paddleboard, whatever it is, um, your, your left brain will jump into action on that, right? But remember, remember your experience with the snake. You had no prior experience with the snake. So your left brain's like, uh, <laughs> didn't know what to do. Uh, you, you had to go into the right brain. You know what I mean? Um, because it was like you had no experience with it. You know, you had you had nothing to call upon. You know, now your first instinct was to hit it with the paddle. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> which, yeah, which may or may not have been a good idea. Probably not. But it's that that was the that's all the left brain had for you. That's all. That's like that's all I got. <laughs> and and funny enough, since that moment, I I noticed a fear creep up within me. Like even Nick was on last week. We were talking about this for a while, and I was like, I'd rather be around a mountain lion or a bear because those my left brain knows what to do with. But a snake, that's completely foreign. And so I did spend you know several hours this week looking up different types of snakes, the difference between, you know, the, the water moccasins and rock snakes and what's venomous and what's not, how to recognize them, what to do if you encounter one. And Nick was totally right. Like they're, they're actually pretty chill animals and they don't attack you unless you've got it like backed into a corner and you're poking it with a stick. And even then it like coils up and says, Hey, watch out. I'm uh, I might fuck you up. And so like, all the, the literature I found online is like, you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. <laughs> and now it's like my left brain's like, ah, now I know and I can relax. And there's a, like a sense of comfort that comes with the left brain knowing stuff and not being in that I don't know phase. Right. Really interesting. Yeah. And, and I would say but, that in critical the... thinking, there's, there's this oscillation that, that's occurring. Right you know, back and forth. And you're, you're in left brain, you're in right brain, you're in left brain, you're in right brain, because you're kind of moving back and forth as the left brain calculates and performs procedures on what you've synthesized. Then the right side will take it back and like, okay, put it into a bigger context and then throw it back to the left brain. And again, more procedure, more synthesis, 
back to the right brain. You know what I mean? And again, this isn't something you have to think about. Okay, I'm going to switch it over to the right brain now. I'm going to switch it over to the right left brain. <laughs> it's that it's a it's a, that state of mind that that uh, that beginner's mind. You know that where you're contemplating the possibilities as opposed to sitting in the I know. Um, that, that this is so this process that I just described. It's it's automatic. You know you don't have to you know consciously go okay i'm synthesizing information now and now i'm going to throw it over to the right brain hey give me some context over there you know what i mean this is something that occurs naturally if you practice and you start to engage that beginner's mind more and more and more and more if you start to listen to music that engages that part of your brain if you start to meditate what are you doing when you're meditating you're sh you're shutting the monkey mind up like, shut the fuck up, monkey. Like, that's what you're doing. You're ignoring the monkey, the monkey mind, the spotlight consciousness. You're practicing not letting it lead. Right. And in the case of the snake, Gingy, um, they're not toys, right? You, they're, they're chill creatures. But once, you're, once you've got a satisfactory knowledge of how to recognize the dangerous ones from the non-dangerous ones, you can look at that with the mind of a child again and say, oh, well, maybe I should just take a look at it, you know, admire its markings, see what it does when I do this. Watch it hunt, for crying out loud, if it doesn't see you. Just, it, it's the difference between a contractor who's been swinging a hammer for 35 years and he knows the difference between a nest wing and a, and a, and a snap-on. He knows all of his tools, but he's not willing to budge when he, when he needs a, an elegant solution to something. When he looks at build, he's framing a building, and he looks at it with a child's mind, and he thinks, "Well, I've been doing this for thirty-five years. This is a unique problem. How do I solve it? What? I, maybe I take out a, a crayon and a piece of paper and sketch this out, right? Or, or I, I look at it from a different perspective. When you engage both sides of your mind, you come up with elegant solutions. And to Brandon's point, writing a bunch of code, if thens and loops and all that good stuff, you can write yourself into a hole." and create something that takes, you know, way too processing power. When if you step away and look at it with the mind of a child, you can apply that knowledge. And I really think that's, I mean, I think the technical, the technical definition of wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Or in this case, knowledge applied, if you, gave, if you were able to transfer 30 years of construction knowledge to a child and give, give this kid a set of Legos, it would, it, it's savant level. Right, I think that's what Brandon's talking about is the marriage of those two things, where you're you're not you're not looking at it w from a rigid programmed perspective. You're looking at it. You've still got that knowledge. You still got that toolkit, but you're able to build insane things. I mean, a pencil and paper, that very specific way they're used, but the things they can create are infinite. Right, and that's why, like, you know, if if someone with absolutely no construction history or programming history were to contemplate the same exact problem that I'm contemplating and overcoming <laughs> in code or in construction, and I've got 30 years of experience in both, there, we're not going to be, we're not going to synthesize the same knowledge. We're not going to synthesize the same solution because they don't have that base there to work with you know they can imagine like well can you do this 
which is which is funny because I've 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 experienced myself getting frustrated with people who know absolutely nothing <laughs> about what I'm doing. Like, what do, what if you just did this? You know, and of course, whatever they're uh, whatever they're asserting as a solution is typically like you know impossible or not feasible in any way, shape, or form, or is nonsensical, right? And so there's like, look, I didn't ask for your help. <laughs> I don't want your help. <laughs> like, you're just taking me out of my zone. Um, so it, it's definitely the, there is a, a balancing there that's always occurring, you know, um, between the two hemispheres, between those two forms of consciousness, those two states of presence, whatever you want to call it, states of mind. Um, it's just about, again, because of our programming that we've experienced about balancing. So if we're good on, on, that, on that distinction, on critical thinking and on those different forms of consciousness that really are essential to understanding in uh, nurturing your own capacity for critical thinking, we can move on to the distinctions in language that will help us to structure factual language, to dissect whether or not language is factual or useful or effective, you know, or whether it's just being used or employed, you know, either, uh, and I don't want to necessarily put that there's negative uh, malintent with people's use of language, because I see a lot of people nowadays, they have these ungrounded assessments about the world and about themselves, and they call it, well, that's my truth. And there's nothing that irritates me more than that statement. Because I don't it like shows that statement either. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it's just like you have like it, to me, it just shows such an utter lack of capacity for thinking. You know, because for one, well, well let's go over the distinctions first, and then I'll rail on my truth. Um, so first. And uh, those of you who've, you know, done my courses before, you know, I have a whole, I do a whole lot on speech acts and effective use of language. And it's, and for me, it's one of the most important uh, concepts, modules, whatever you want to call it, that I've ever taught because it is so important in being able to decipher the bullshit in the world. You know, so many times I hear people like, well, how do we know what's true? Learn how to effectively use the language. <laughs> it's that simple, you know, because what they want to be told is where is the source of truth that I could just go listen to and regurgitate? See, that's their left brain. Their left brain just wants to be fed the quote unquote truth so that they can regurgitate it whenever needed. And that's not truth, you know. Um, and again, this isn't a phenomenon, uh, you know, in our polarized world, which is highly polarized, it, this isn't a phenomenon that exists in only one of these polarities or the other. It exists in both, okay, or all, <laughs> because I'm sure we can find more than two polarizations in our modern world. But you'll see that this polarization of people who latch onto the left brain, they latch onto the the talking points, right? And they just regurgitate information, right? You see it on the left, you see it on the right, you see it in all aspects and all polarities within our ideological culture. 
or all the ideological polarizations within our culture, you see this just latching on to talking points, latching on to information, latching on to assessments, ungrounded assessments, and then speaking them as if they are facts and they, in fact, are not. And here's why. There's a distinction in language. We're going to call one distinction assertions, which are statements which can be proven true or false with absolution. There is no grayness in there. An assertion can be proven true or false. For instance, the temperature in my house right now is 74 degrees. Okay. That could be proven true or false with a thermometer, right? Um, so that is, a, that is an assertion. Okay. It is clear and can be proven true or false. Okay. Uh, the, that boat sank to the bottom of the lake. That is an assertion. It can be proven true or false because if it's true, then the boat will be at the bottom of the lake. Okay. Um, so these, that's, that's a distinct part of language known as an assertion. It can be clearly proven true or false. Quick question on that. Um, one of the things that I've understood is that it, like something that I've used as a way to tell the difference between an assertion or assessment is the, uh, the assertion being able to prove it true or false is, is that it can be measured. There's some type of metric you can hold against it, like a thermometer, like a tape measure or something like that. Or, um, but in, in the case of a lake, there's not really like a, you know, this is a lake or not, it's, you know, it's a body of water or there's sank, like there's no sank meter or lake meter to tell you the degree of lakeness. Or sank <laughs> right. And now notice how something... you're, yeah, notice how your left brain completely isolated the elements of that assertion so that you've lost the context. Is that an important factor of that assertion, whether or not it's a lake or a pond? Is that significant yeah. at all? No, because no, I, what's significant it, is the boat sank. Right. <laughs> the boat sank, right? Now, and, and again, can it be measured? No, but it can be experienced. It can be witnessed. It can be seen, right? So I, I can't, you know, if you start saying, well, it's only three meters deep, so that's technically not sank. Like, no, 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 no. Like, there, there, is, a, there is a common use of language here that, that we're relying on, that we have a common understanding that if a boat goes under the water and is no longer floating, it has sank. Okay. That's the significant. And what's funny is what you just did by pointing out whether it was a lake or not is exactly what the fact checkers do. They take a story and they take some insignificant element out of it. And a lot of times it's not even an assertion. It's an assessment. And they go, well, that's not true. That piece right there is not true. So this whole story is not true. You see that? Yeah. So how, how do we tell the difference? How do we tell if it is an assertion? How, how can we um, not measure? It can it, be proven true or false. It can be right, proven true like, or false. Is that like simple? Somebody else can be like, well, I can prove that it's my experience. That you're an asshole. No, 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 no. <laughs> you, you can't. You can't. I'm for that line. I'm you, for the now, line. And now that's and now you have to understand assessment language. That really, you're not talking about assertions anymore. You're talking about assessments. And that you have to be clear on 
what assessment language is. What does it sound like? What kinds of words are used? Asshole is purely subjective. So that guy's an asshole will always be an assessment. Even if everyone on the planet agrees, yep, that guy's an asshole, it's still an assessment. The fact that everyone agrees doesn't make it any more factual. It just makes it a well-grounded assessment. Well, that's how they say <laughs> they prove stuff. That's how they right. say science. Like this is everyone's got the same conclusion. Therefore, it must be truth. Must right. Be right. And the other one of the other things they do is they'll say, well, nine out of ten proctologists say this man is an asshole. Well, then it becomes quote unquote scientific fact. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it that, doesn't. So I'm saying, no, I know that's what I'm saying. It doesn't. I'm I'm using I'm you can't see I'm making quotey marks with my fingers. But yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, but and that's and then again, we'll we'll get into that about science as an institution versus science as a method. Love that article. There's, yeah, there's two different sciences happening here. You know what I mean? In our world right now. There's science as an institution and there's science as a method. <laughs> and actually the science of a method uh, as a method is actually being really underused <laughs> more than anything. Very few people are actually engaging in actual science because for close to a century now, it's been being built up as an institution. And not only is it institutional, but there's a philosophical basis to this institution, which rejects out of hand anything that doesn't fall into line with the worldview philosophy, which isn't science at all. You know, they're, it's a religion. They're, they're, it is. It absolutely is. And it's based on what we call mechanistic materialism. That is the worldview of most scientists, like Dawkins, right? For him, that is reality. However, there is no quote-unquote scientific proof that their philosophy of a mechanistic materialistic world is true. There is nothing to support that. But that is their worldview. And anything that contradicts their worldview, they call pseudoscience. Not because the people who come up with these new hypotheses, not because they're not following the scientific method. No, they are. But because it presents anomalies to their science. And see, because science is now an institution, if you present something that shows anomalies in their theories and their hypothesis and in their worldview, they reject out of hand, your new hypothesis. And this is what's keeping science from actually moving forward, is this approach, this institutional science, which isn't science at all. Science is a method. And science is not institutional. And science has no truth. It has no conclusions. It is a process that must always be engaged in order to advance. In fact, it was Max Planck, <laughs> had a quote. He said, science only advances with, uh, how does it, I forget, I'm going to brutalize the quote, but it's basically science advances only because of, uh, not because of uh, the scientific method, but because of funerals or something like that. He's basically alluding to, we only advance science because the guys who are immovable on their science and their points of view eventually die. <laughs> and then us younger guys with fresher ideas, now we get to step into the into the spotlight and our science gets forwarded. So it, it's but this institutional 
uh, approach to science goes all the way back to like 1895 or 1900. In 1900, uh, Lord Kelvin had a quote. He said, We've dis- we know all there is to know about physics. Now we're just working out the details. And again, that's a paraphrase. I, I think he said, we're just, uh, we're refining the calculations or something like that. We're basically, it was about the decimal points. We, we just got, you know, we just got to solve the stuff for more decimal points. It's just about accuracy at this point, but we know all there is to know about physics. And then five years later, Einstein publishes general relativity or special relativity. I forget which one he published first. I think it was special relativity. So again, a revolution of science happened five years after a well-respected physicist declared it could go no further. Okay. And this is institutional science, the beginning of institutional science. And it's been moving that way ever since. Okay. So back to assertions, assessments. So assertions, statements, they could be proven true or false. Now an assessment, and now this isn't one is more valuable than the other. They're both valuable parts of language. Assessments are just as valuable as assertions, but they're more complicated in that an assessment is by its nature, a judgment, an opinion, right? But it's, if you ground it, it has more value. And what do I mean by grounding it? Meaning I may have a judgment about something and I may support that judgment by uh, assertions, with assertions, and maybe with other assessments that are also grounded. But assertions and other grounded assessments help to ground my assessment. So it's, it's giving it value. It's, it's, it's making it more likely, right? It's making it uh, a better way of looking at things, okay? The more that I can ground it, the better that assessment is, the more useful it is, okay? So for example, (laughs) we could go back to Gingy's an asshole. Um, If everyone agrees, then it's a well-grounded assessment. We could pretty much go, yeah, Gingy's an asshole. It's never a fact. It can never be proven true or false, but because everyone on the planet agrees that he's an asshole, it's it's a very well-grounded assessment at that point, okay? Um, now, again, doesn't mean we're all right. Doesn't mean that it's true. It's not true. It's not factual. It is just a judgment. And you can see, you could recognize whether a statement is an assessment or assertion by the language used in it. So calling someone an asshole cannot ever be proven true or false, Okay. Um, but let's use, let's, let's, what's a more real world example of an assessment? You gave a, uh, a perfect one just a second ago, which I wanted to ask about the, uh, Kelvin or whoever you were just talking about said that we, all there is to know about, uh, science and we're just working out the details now that may have been like the direction that all literature was pointing in that moment. I don't know. I wasn't there. So how could that be an assertion or an assessment? Because it seems like it was an assessment since it was proven wrong. <laughs> well, no, it, it, it's an assertion that was proven wrong. So it's a false yeah. assertion, right? Because okay. he, he, was, he was making a definitive statement. We know all there is to know, 
right? Um, so he's asserting that they know all there is to know. There will never be anything more to learn. Uh, we've got physics handled. It's figured out. We're just working out the finer details. You know, that's a, a definitive statement. Okay. So, it, and it can be proven true or false. And it was proven false when Einstein came forward and said, hey, here's a whole new way of looking at physics. <laughs> you know? a lot more. Um, but it's also, I'd say it also shows a lack of Kelvin's understanding of science. What science is. Science isn't something that establishes anything definitively. That's not the nature of science. Science is a method. It is always dynamic and in flux and changing. It is, it's like the fact when people say, yeah, well, we just, we believe the science, the science, you believe the science. That is a complete misrepresentation of what science is. There is no believing science. There's arguing science. There's proving science. There's hypothesizing. There's experimentation, right? But there is no, it doesn't land on definitive truths. Like even what they call the laws of physics, right? Well, as soon as, as, soon as relativity came out, the laws of physics all of a sudden weren't laws anymore. In fact, relativity is, a much, is much more useful in making calculations around gravitational forces than Newton's uh, formulas with regards to gravity, okay? So Newton, his, his physics are called the laws, right? There's the law of gravity, right? <laughs> and, but this is not, it's not definitive. It's useful and it can be used to calculate things. But Einstein's relativity was much more useful. And like, if we're going to fire something out into space, we're not using Newtonian physics to figure out, okay, how close do we want to get it to Saturn to get our slingshot effect? No. Newtonian physics is wholly <laughs> uh, inadequate to make that calculation. You need the mathematics of relativity in order to make that calculation. Okay. Well, so, well I have to call it, you, you do need both. I mean, Newtonian physics apply in in a vacuum, like all like action and reaction and gravitational pull. They mix them both, though. That it took it took blending them, taking taking what was useful out of Newton and taking what was useful out of um, out of Einstein, that's, Einsteinian that's a, physics. That's a synthesis that is not Newtonian physics. Newtonian right, physics, saying. they're using both, especially Newton's law of gravity, is not sufficient, is not adequate. So. In fact, science is never definitive, right? It can't be. That's yeah. Not, science is a method. Right. Science is art. not an institution. Right. It's one of the few. It's one of the few disciplines, if you can call it that. It's one of the few disciplines where failure means progress. It's it's people being happy with being wrong. The whole point of science is proving something wrong, not necessarily proving it right. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's, it's either you, well, we were able to apply it here and it worked, right? But that does not make it a definitive truth, right? Like meteorology, right? That's considered a science. How often is the fucking weatherman wrong? A lot. <laughs> science ain't an exact science to these yahoos. I think that's from 12 Monkeys. I don't remember if it says yahoos though.
So, so what would make it an assessment if we use that same example? If if he said, well, like if my science is the best science, some type of qualifier in there. But what would make that yeah. statement that Kelvin made instead of an assessment be an, or an assertion would make it into an assessment? It, it, if you use any kind of qualifier, like you just like the example you just did, it if it's better, if it's um, like if we know all the best science there will ever be known, mm-hmm. or science will never get better than it is today, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. That those are all qualifiers. So whenever, and again, you can even take something that, and you'll see this a lot in the language being used. It's used in media. It's used by quote unquote scientists, um, bureaucrats. They'll make statements as if they're assertions, and they sound really close to assertions, but they'll have some kind of a qualifier in there that clearly makes them an assessment. And not only is it an assessment, but it's not even grounded by anything, okay? So for instance, let's look at the critical, the critical theories in the neo-Marxism, you know, uh, running, running roughshod over the, really the world, not even just our country right now. And they make statements like, right, um, uh, what, what's the word? Systemic racism. There are unequal outcomes in proportion to racial representation of the people in this country. That is uh, systemic racism, or that is proof of systemic racism, right? Unequal outcomes is proof of systemic racism. <clears throat> is that an assertion or an assessment? Now, this one you really have to dissect because you have to look at what they're saying, right? So, first of all, there are unequal outcomes, okay? Now, that's an assertion, and that can be proven true or false, okay? If we, if we break this statement up. And unequal outcomes, yeah, there are unequal outcomes. There always have been. There always will be, okay? But unequal outcomes is proof of systemic racism? Mm, No, it's not. But is that, are they asserting that? Or is that their assessment? See, it's really, it's kind of a combination. The way I stated it, it's like a combination statement because I've separated an assertion from an assessment. And together, it's as if they're grounding the assessment. But have they? Is that a grounded assessment? And how do we dissect this? How do we pull apart that statement? Wouldn't it be a grounded assessment? I mean, uh, it would the the it's fact that there's unequal outcomes. Okay. So th- there is unequal outcome, but that is not that does not truly ground or prove the statement that there is systemic racism. Now, they may assert that that's how they've grounded that assessment, okay? And the reason I say that it's it, that, it, that that second part, that there is systemic racism, is because systemic racism is judgment, okay? Like, like that is, unless you can actually point to here is systemic racism, which I could, but they can't, because if they point to the actual systemic racism, 
it'd be all the policies that they're actually pushing, like uh, refusing to give white farmers uh, uh, bailout money. Nope, sorry, only blacks, only Latinos, uh, gender confused, whatever, they all get money, you don't. That is actual systemic racism, but they won't point to that. So that's not the really, that's not the kind of systemic racism they're talking about. So even their definition of systemic racism is real blurry because the actual definition of systemic racism would be that there is something encoded within our system. Like it's part of our policies. It's part of something that you can point to and say, see that right there? Like, like when they had like, the Jim Crow laws where, you know, you couldn't go to the same schools. You couldn't. Uh, drink out of the same drinking fountains. Like that is systemic racism because it's, we could point to something and go, look, it's right there in the laws. It's right there in city ordinances. Like that is systemic racism, but there's nothing like that to point to. So those, that phrase systemic racism makes it an assessment because there is no, there, that's not a clearly defined thing. Whereas <clears throat> unequal outcome I really, you should have to define that even further because unequal outcome in what? Okay, well, let's say uh, prison population. Okay, true. That the proportion of people in the population by race is not equal to the proportion of people in prison, meaning black people make up 13% of the population, they make up 50% of the prison population. So that's an unequal outcome, okay? But that's correlation does not equal causation, right? So you can't just say because there's unequal outcome that that's systemic racism, especially when there's not even a clear definition for systemic racism in this case, right? So this is an ungrounded assessment because what they're attempting to use to ground the assessment is a correlation. It's, it's not a causation. And we, cause we can also point to, and here's the thing about especially when you make statements, assessments about society, okay? When you make an assessment, really about people in general, okay? Now, it's easier to get away with assessments about inanimate objects, assessments about um, simple, simple concepts, simple structures. <clears throat> Humans, just a human, just one human, is a, an extremely complex system. When you take a billion humans and throw them together, we're talking about an infinitely complex system. So to try to boil down an unequal outcome based on one variable, one variable is ludicrous. This is, that's not a scientific approach to anything. <clears throat> because human society is an extremely complex system, we could pull out tens of thousands of variables. And if we really wanted to do something, right? So if we weren't critical theorists and we actually wanted to solve this problem, right? Because they have no solutions. <laughs> They're not actually trying to fix any problems. They're just like, there's unequal outcomes, tear this shit down, right? That's their solution. That's not a solution. That's just tear this shit down. That's not gonna make, that's not gonna change anything. Or tear this shit down. Or how about we just put in some racism? That should fix the racism problem. Let's just add racism to the system. And that'll fix the problem. Um, but again, they're getting away with it because nobody's 
taking this back into the right side of the brain. Nobody's seeing the context of what's occurring here. And I'm not going to say nobody, but there's a large portion of the population that just accepts that unequal outcome equals systemic racism. Bam, done, left brain, it's programmed in. And they've heard it 600 times in the media, in, uh, in schools, right? They've, they've just, it's been beat into them. So it's, it lives in the left side of the brain. So when somebody asks them, hey, do you think there's systemic racism? Like, yep, unequal outcomes. <laughs> you know, like it, it's an automatic association. They don't think about it. It lives in the left side of the brain, right? It lives in that spotlight consciousness. It just comes out. It is, that is their quote unquote evidence. Even though looking at the structure of the language, there's nothing there. There's no facts there, right? The one fact they assert unequal outcome is just, correl is just a correlation. Like, okay, we have unequal outcome. That doesn't mean racism. It's, you can't make that, that conclusion. That, does, that doesn't fit. That doesn't work. That doesn't support. That statement, unequal outcome, does not support racism. Show me racism. Point to racism. Show me racist policies. So to ground and people assessment. being racist. What's that? So to ground an assessment, does it have to be um, causative instead of correlated? No, it just has to support the, the assessment. So, for instance, um, let me use a better assessment than Gingy's an asshole. Um, Here we go. The Tesla, and I don't know any of the models or anything, but the, the coolest one, the fastest one, right? The Tesla is the fastest consumer vehicle or can achieve higher speeds off the line or can beat any other consumer vehicle in a 50-yard race, okay? I've made, an, I've made an assertion. I've made an assessment, right? Um, actually, I've made an assertion. Uh, no, because I used fastest, right? So that's, that's an assessment because that's a judgment word. It's the fastest. So you could do that with timing them both or every car, you know, on the planet. Right. Exactly. Now I can time every consumer vehicle from in a 50 yard, like, you know, gas it as much as you can. And, and that's, again, that doesn't make it when we, when we get to the end of this testing every car on the planet, it doesn't, it doesn't transform it into a fact. It's still an assessment, but it is well grounded if it, if it in fact did beat all the other cars. Okay? If, we, if we presume in that experiment, in, in our collection of facts, we have an extraordinarily well-grounded assessment. Okay. And now, I'm not following it, that because I, I feel like faster is you could quantify that just like you could say the, the adult is faster than the baby and the baby's crawling it, and the adult is running. And you're like, well, yeah, that's faster. You can measure the speeds that they're going. One's going one mile an hour. One's going 10 miles an hour. How would faster right. be a judgment? It is the, by the nature of the word. Now, a factual statement would be the adult is moving 10 miles per hour. The baby is moving one mile per hour. That's an assertion. 
What about that supports your that supports an hour faster? Listen, 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 okay, listen. That supports your assessment that the adult is moving faster. You see, the adult is moving faster is not a factual statement. It cannot be proven true or false. It can be supported by your your assertions that well, the adult's going ten miles per hour and the child's going one mile per hour. Boom. You've now got a grounded assessment, but faster is a judgment word. But what you about see, the there, state? There is, no, there is no metric in the word faster. You had to, you had to clip onto it. The adult is going this many miles per hour. That could be proven true or false. Now, if you'd have just not said faster, if you'd have just said the adult is moving at 10 miles per hour, that can be proven true or false because either he is or he isn't. So faster is an assessment word. It's again, this is just structure of language. I get faster is a judgment. So tell me why, why I can say that the adult is moving nine miles an hour faster than the baby. Is that still an assessment or no, that's, that's, you put a metric in there. Okay. So you're really, again, you're not, if all you said was the adults moving faster than the baby, there is no metric. There is nothing there is that no can faster be faster. Yeah, there is. Yeah, ma- faster mean. doesn't mean anything. It's just a judgment word. Gotcha, gotcha. So it's unquantitative. Uh, exactly. Got it. Okay, that makes more sense now. Yeah, and 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 again, if you actually have the you know the speeds that you you've clocked them at, well, now you've got a well-grounded assessment. And there's very little anyone could. Now, somebody else might come up and go, well, I clocked the adult at six miles per hour and the baby at five miles per hour. And they're like, that's not that much faster. <laughs> like, like, see, now, they're pl- now you're playing with words because, right, like, right. It, it, because it's, it, it, it's it, the assessment word means different things to different people, right? Faster like when I said- Because it could be- Two miles an hour faster, 10 miles an hour faster, one millimeter faster, whatever right. you quantify. What if, it's in, what if it's indistinguishable? What if they're, they're moving together and you can't distinguish with the naked eye? You know what I mean? It's okay. At that point, it's like, okay, they're moving faster based on what? You know, what are you basing that on? I'm just thinking when I was a kid, I thought I was faster than everybody. yeah okay that makes sense it's my lived experience that babies are faster than adults okay don't question (laughs) your truth (laughs) that's my lived truth yes so and that's perfect perfect segue because that's again it's for one it's the human potential movement and the neo-Marxist movements all latch onto that concept of my truth. Right. And, and they, and they're and that, even that phrase, right. Again, locked into the left brain is that phrase, my lived experience, right? Nobody knows anyone's lived experience. Let's just get that out of the way. Okay. Because we are individuals. We've had individual experiences. And so there is not one person on this planet 
that can perfectly relate to another. Even identical twins raised in the same house do not have the same lived experience. So that is another one of those statements that has absolutely no meaning. But they assert or they, yeah, they assert that that's why they identify as that group because they assert that that group has some kind of a group lived experience that, oh, that all blacks have that. And if you're a black person, you come up and you say, well, I don't have that. Like, oh, it's because you're complicit in white supremacy. <laughs> just spit out this bullshit. Again, nothing. There's no context to any of this. None of this connects up. None of this lines up. There's no rationale or reason behind it, but they've locked everyone into the left brain. If someone black disagrees, they're complicit with white supremacy. Boom. The formula's written. It's ingrained. It's beat into their heads in their trainings, at their, at their work, at their, in their classrooms. This is just boom. It's, it's, it's beat into their heads. And it's just now it's just remembered. Dude, there's a, my, my very first experience with, with, I'll call it the privilege conversation. There was a, a girl that I met and we were, you know, I was having an awesome conversation with somebody about you know, uh, responsibility and empowerment. And, you know, she was like having breakthrough after breakthrough and kept asking me questions about stuff. And the, the conversation was mutually supportive all the way around. It felt like a, a CLF after hours conversation, just one of those like super energizing conversations. And this lady comes over and she starts talking to me like, well, you just, you got, you know, you, you're in that unique position because you come from a space of privilege. And if it wasn't for your privilege, you wouldn't know these distinctions. You wouldn't be able to live them out. You wouldn't blah, 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 blah. And we <laughs> went into it for hours. I want to say the rest of the night until I left <laughs> very frustrated and she left very frustrated. And it was almost like a, an agree to disagree with a large level of like frustration or animosity <laughs> when we left. But the whole conversation basically broke down to me walking her through the, her logic being like, so you're telling me that if a kid only has one parent that they're not able to create success and happiness in their life. And she goes, well, no, no, no. There's, you know, there's always the exception. I'm like, okay, then that statement can't be true. Anyone coming from a quote unquote broken family does not mean they're doomed. And she goes, no, yeah, it does. Statistically, yeah, they're totally doomed. And I'm like, but you just said <laughs> that it's, there's an exception. So who's to say who that exception is? And we went around and around and around chasing our tails. Because every time we came back to her point, she doubled down on it. And every time I brought up the, the, uh, the exception, she was like, well, yeah, of course, it's not you know, a mutable fact. Yeah, there's always exceptions. Okay, so your point, nope, doubled back down. Yeah, yeah this is that left brain intervening. It's intervening because it needs to be right. The left brain intervenes. Like she had, you, you had those moments where she dropped back and let, uh, an over a, a more broad view kind of take it in and go oh yeah well no that's you know there are exceptions and then five seconds later completely reject that there are exceptions like that's the left brain intervening going no no i'm right here i know stuff you know and yeah. and, and yeah. that's and again because it's been so ingrained 
I can't, it's you're getting it through your music, you're getting it through education, you're getting it through media, you're getting it everywhere. They're reinforcing this trap, trapping you in the left brain, so that even when you have those moments of like uh, awareness, openness, the left brain literally it's like it's like your own onboard agent Smith. <laughs> like everyone's got an onboard agent Smith who's ready to jump in and completely nullify anything and everything, you know, at a, at a moment's notice. Well, well, think about it in terms of the distinction that you made earlier with left brain, right brain, and how right brain is more contextual and beginner. Um, I can I can see actually a little bit with with a little bit more clarity now that what I was doing was walking her through a thought process that she had never gone through before. So we right. were in completely uncharted territory and she dropped into the space of a beginner and she right. was like, Oh yeah, I see like this. And yeah, there could be an exception here. And just because of this one statistic doesn't actually doom them. So there is. And by the time we got back to the shit that she knows, the ego took over control or not necessarily the ego, but I'll say the left brain, the spotlight right. awareness kicked back in and said, Oh no, no, no. But I know this one. That's the fact right there. Boom. And so it was every time we moved away from what she did know, there was possibility, there was openness, and there was, you know, a discovery and learning happening. Right. And when we moved back into what she did know, she doubled down on it and rejected everything else. I didn't, right. I never noticed that before, but that is exactly what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, now, there, <clears throat> there may have been another way for you to keep her in that opening, that open space longer. You know what I mean? And there, there may be a way, a strategy in having a conversation with someone to kind of get the right brain to rewrite the map that the left brain has latched onto. You know what I mean? Yeah, like if there's a way to, I mean, this would be cool to talk about towards the end when we talk about you know how to apply this and some practices to take home, but how to how to not only lead somebody else through this and keep somebody else in a spate of openness and discovery, but mm -hmm. how to through that with them, how to be there yourself even without somebody else, so that you can also you know work on expanding that aspect and practicing those aspects of your own self. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, I haven't really thought we might have to talk about that another time, like how, how you might be able to, you know, be strategic in a conversation if you want to, you know, support someone in, in kind of breaking up that map that they hold on to so dearly. Um, but it's, you know, there's the, uh, a lot of people they've they've got their identity wrapped up with what they know you know so <clears throat> there are certain people who will never let go of their ideology um and what's funny is <laughs> if you look at the institutions right there's now an institution of science there's inst the academics you know the 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 education the educators in the in the university system right on their way to becoming professors and getting tenure and all this, they start writing papers, which crystallizes who they are, what they think. 
and they will defend it with their dying breath because they've wrapped their identity in these, you know, many of them completely ridiculous concepts that they put forward as if they're facts. They're not. There's no factual basis to any of it. But because they've wrapped their identity in this, they're not letting go. They, they're institutionalized. They, they've institutionalized themselves either under their own cool new theory or because they've adopted someone else's theses and theories and uh, school of thought. And so because they identify as I'm, you know, I'm a this, you know, I'm a this kind of a philosopher and I'm a that because they've even done it to philosophy, philosophy, which could be an extraordinarily powerful tool for people in general. They've institutionalized it. You know, they lock you into a set of theses and a set of a, a way of thinking, right? A school of thought. And, and then you crystallize that position by the papers that you write. I wonder if that's what happened with the lady that you were listening to about the science of diversity or something like that, where she was authentically not motivated or not whatever. But then as soon as somebody questioned it, she had to defend her identity because right. that's what I yeah. hear a lot of people doing, not defending their ideas, but defending who they believe they are. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, 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 they don't distinguish. Remember, the ego lives in that left brain, right? So if you're what I know, I know these things. Well, that is your, that's part of your identity. It's part of your ego. Your ego knows those things. So to challenge those things is to challenge their very being. It's like they're going, it's like, it's like, you've, you've, it's like you've pushed them into an existential crisis. You know what I mean? Like there's, some, there's definitely some unintended consequences there to challenging a person's beliefs. You know, there, I have had conversations with people like that woman I was just talking about where, you know, we get to the point of like, well, do you believe that all people are inherently victims because of how they were born, who their parents were, where they grew up, blah, blah, blah. These, these factors, I'll call them. And at the very bottom of it, I can see the struggle in their minds. That's, that's, you know, more or less the, if I'm wrong about this, I don't know who I am in the world because they painted their entire self around being the savior or the fix to the problem. They've dedicated their life's work to anti-racist stuff. And if there's no real racism or if they're perpetuating or increasing the racism that's on the planet, like <laughs> that's to then look at yourself as the bad guy and then have this, right. whole, yeah. you know, you know, midlife or, you know, in introspective crisis. I, well, at I best, <laughs> best you have cognitive dissonance which will create a, a high level of anxiety yeah. right because all of a sudden what you believe yourself to be is is not, is not exactly lining up you know with your values right so your or, or i should say what you believe yourself to be and the actions and and the thoughts that you hold the truths that you hold do not line up with some set of values that you hold for yourself. Like, Especially if you've sacrificed to get there, to get to where you are. Right. 
if you gave up relationships, yeah. money, if you spent your entire college career doing whatever it is you're doing, I couldn't imagine, you know, getting three PhDs in a field that now is against your actual morals and <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's why like, you'll never see like the Robin D'Angelo's or the Ibram Kendi's like, they'll never, they'll never give up their positions. They're too you far know? in. Oh yeah. They've charged hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to people to come to regurgitate their bullshit. You know, yeah, I'll show up, give me 20 grand and I'll give you a 20 minute talk, you know, on zoom. <laughs> like, like, I mean, th there's, they, I, and again, not that they don't believe their bullshit. They probably do. Um, you have to, but they, you would think, but I don't know, because then you, you're, you're, you're projecting on them some sense of morality. They might not have, right. they might not have, <laughs> they, they might have they, no morality, no values. And it may, and we, we have a tendency if you, because you have morals, you have values, we tend to project them. But like, oh, yeah, they don't. But they may be real pieces of shit who know what they're saying is complete bullshit and destroying our culture and society. They don't care. <laughs> you know, like, that's a possibility. I'm saying, but still, it is possible. Yeah, there are definitely people out there like that. I I do right, tend to right. assume the best in people. <laughs> Go yeah. ahead, Nick. Right. If, well, if nothing else, you can, I mean, attributing motives, bad or good, that's one thing, but their actions speak. That they, they might believe it. They might believe what they're writing, but one thing's for sure, they believe in the money they're getting. They believe in the power they're getting. So, you know, they may think that's because they're on the side of right, and, you know, the god of... Uh, social justice blesses them or they're doing the right thing or they just, you know, it's a gig, right? Yeah, yeah maybe they're just exactly. a performer. There's no way yeah, to tell and, where they're coming from. Yeah, and, and in reality, we don't need to. Like, it, it as far as I'm concerned, it's their motives are immaterial. Right, we motives are irrelevant. Yeah, it's irrelevant. It's immaterial. We can dissect what they're saying and say, yeah, there is no substance to this. You know, whether y'all realize it or not, you're completely full of shit. Sorry. <laughs> like we have that power within us. We have that power with language to be able to cut it up, to dissect it, to look at it, see it in a broader context and say, yeah, no, this, this doesn't work. This doesn't fly. It's not reasonable. It's not rational. There's <laughs> contradictions in your logic. Like there is so many problems here. There is zero substance, zero value, you know, kind of thing. Um, and, you, and again, their, their projection that, oh, well, if you disagree with our model, well, then you're racist, you're this, you're that. You're, and if you, and we talked about this last week, you know, the importance of being able to stand up to that is that authenticity. Like if I'm authentic in my life, in, in, in my relationships, then people saying things about me, calling me a racist, calling me a bigot will have no effect on me because if I'm authentic and I am secure with who I truly am, then I don't need them to like me. I don't need their approval and their uh, remarks, comments, right, have no bearing on I, I know I'm not that. You can call me that all you want. 
right? And, and again, this is exceptionally hard because of this social media reality that people live in, where your entire life is upended, you know, because of something someone posted on your Facebook page or some shit, because people have wrapped their identities up in these, you know, this false reality, this social media reality. So they've, so they're, they, they are deathly afraid of somebody making a comment about them on Twitter or posting something on their Facebook, you know, so people are not authentic, you know, for one, you're, Facebook profile or your Twitter profile, whatever it is, it's, it's a curated image. It's not you. It's not who you really are. It's a curated image of who you are. And because, so that's inauthentic. That's not genuine. It's, it's purely a fabrication. It's a, it's the mythology of you. And people have bought into their own mythologies. They bought into this curated image of themselves. And so because there's a lack of authenticity there, they are afraid of somebody saying something about them, somebody <laughs> downvoting them, giving them a thumbs down. Oh my God, that's got to be the worst thing ever. You got a thumbs down, whatever. But people have wrapped up their value, their self-worth in this. And so that's most of what you're seeing is just people go, getting, going along to get along. And they go along to get along because they don't have a sense of self, an authentic sense of self. So to harken back to last week, the authenticity part, you know, cause we're, we're kind of moving in. I feel like we've, we've hit on the distinctions of assessments, assertions, but now, I mean, and I feel like that in and of itself is like how, you know, we always like to, you know, finish off with how do we apply this? What's the solutions? You know, what can we do? Um, I feel like that mastering that, you know, identifying ass assessments, assertions, um, being able to ground your own assessments, um, recognizing assertions, um, uh, go getting out of the I know, you know, and again, this is something that this is not unique to one side or the other, because I see a ton of people on the, on the left. And on the right, caught up in an ideology that has them in this space of I know, right? Um, like, you know, ask anyone, especially if they're like QAnon right wing, about a Democrat in Hollywood, okay? Any Democrat in Hollywood. And they, and they pretty much lean behind every Democrat in Hollywood is a pedophile, no exception. However, the Republicans in Hollywood, they're not. Like they, they, they live in that absoluteness that all Republicans are not pedophiles and all Democrats in Hollywood are pedophiles. You know, and this, is a, they, they, this isn't a grounded assessment. This is completely ungrounded, but they, they speak as if it's true. And they operate out of that left brain. They don't think about it. They don't think for themselves. They don't like, well, let's figure this out. Well, let's look at the evidence. Like they're not, they, they don't kick back into that floodlight consciousness. They don't kick back into that right brain. They store up this information in the left brain and the left wing does it too. And so you're seeing people on the political, on both sides of the political spectrum holding on 
to these truths, right? These, these things that they believe that they've, that they've heard basically just someone say, and that's all it is. Just like the left wing has their slogans and their talking points. Well, the right wing has theirs, you know, and, and it's, and it's, it's, it's robot. It's, it's making both into automatons, right? Non-thinking, which is bad. <laughs> because where are the thinking people at? If the people on the right aren't thinking, and if the people on the left aren't thinking, where are the thinking people at? You know. So that's for me, for our culture, for our society, that's the biggest concern. Is that there is this inability or this unawareness, I'll say, because there's definitely not an inability. There's this unawareness that you've locked yourself in to this left brain, to this spotlight consciousness. You regurgitate talking points. You know. You know things that you don't know you don't know. <laughs> right? um, so you, you, you speak with certainty. You don't actually contemplate. You don't actually let yourself go into that mind of the beginner and like really like, okay, let's figure this out and then structure what you say in a way that you're clear on, well, this is a factual statement or this is an assertion that can be proven true or false. So get all your assertions down. Oh, this can be proven true or false. This can be proven true or false. This can be proven true or false. And then make your assessments and ground your assessments with assertions. You know, like, okay, yes, I'm clear. I'm making a judgment here. There's nothing wrong with judgments. Judgments can be extremely beneficial, extremely useful, right? However, we should ground them. <laughs> you know, like to just make a blanket statement about something and have no, no facts whatsoever, no assertions that have been validated that support it. Then it's just, it's empty. But the cool thing about that is that in understanding those distinctions of language, you can structure your language in a way that you can create facts in language. You can create well-grounded assessments. And if they're well-grounded, then they really, there's, there's nothing many can do to argue against it, right? Because that's all you could do with assessments is argue them. And if you're going to argue them, then you must bring a better assessment. You can't just say, well, that's not right. Well, I, you know, this isn't a true or false statement. It's a well-grounded assessment. It's a judgment. I'm clear on that. You know, because when you're clear that, yeah, I know this isn't truth. I know that that's not a fact. It is an assessment. It is a judgment. But check this out. I got all this shit right here that supports that judgment. What do you got? Because if all you got is, well, that ain't right. You're just ignorant. You're a bigot. Okay, that's an ad hominem attack. Attack. You're attacking me, not my argument, not my assessment. You have nothing on my assessments. You want to attack me personally, that's fine. I'm clear on who I am. So your attacks on me mean nothing. And they mean even less against my assessments because you aren't touching my assessments. You're attacking me. And this is, the, again, this is the tactic you'll see. If you've made a well-grounded assessment, they won't touch it. They'll attack you. They won't touch your well-grounded assessment. And if they do, they ain't got nothing to touch it with. 
They'll make empty statements, which you'll be able to recognize. You'll be able to identify, oh, okay, that's your assessment. What do you got to back it up? It's crazy how that's part of the, well, probably the main ammunition that I see thrown around in conversations or differing opinions. Is nobody's talking about the point. Nobody's talking about what the other person said. Oh, this right. coming from a racist. Why am I supposed to listen to you? It doesn't matter how good the information is. It's the, yeah, no, that's the, you know, the attack that's the messenger, the not the message. Yeah, yeah it's, it's called ad hominem. It's an ad hominem attack. You attack the man, the person, not the argument or the message or the assessment. And that's one of their tactics. But now you can identify it. You can say, oh, okay, so you want to attack me, but you, get, you ain't got nothing on my, on my assessment? You ain't got nothing to put up against it? You ain't got a better argument? Is that what you're telling me? See? And this is why they don't want to debate. <laughs> this is why they don't want to have conversations because there is no substance to anything they're saying. But if you can now identify it, pull it apart and go, okay, I hear, here's your assessment right here, right? Because what they'll do is they like to use it. Well, that's my truth. That's my lived experience. That's my truth. No, that's an ungrounded assessment. These are judgment words. This cannot be proven true or false. See, you can pull apart their language. That is not a truth. Like, if you want to, you you want to say it's a truth. You at least gotta, it's at least got to be moved, be either supported by something that can be proven true or false, or it's got to be moving towards true or false. You know what I mean? It can't just be these, or I should say, or supported by something that can be proven true or false. It can't just be these judgments, unsupported judgments, and you call it a truth. What? Because you say so, it's truth? Bullshit. I'm calling bullshit. Well, no, that's when they go with the... It's not truth. That's not truth. That's when they go with the, well, everybody else thinks it's that. Like, talk to all the scientists. They all all agree that smoking is bad for you and global warming. (laughs) And thus, it's a fact. It's truth. Why don't you believe it, too? And they literally use that language. Yeah, and but see, in a conversation like that, I would start to pull apart all the pieces. You know what I mean? Like global warming. I, I would first, I would say, you mean climate change? Because then they would, yeah, yeah, of course, climate change, because, you know, global warming has been proven to be a farce. But okay, climate change. Yeah, I don't deny that climate changes. <laughs> like, yeah, the one thing that's constant about climate is that it changes. That's the one thing we can say is true about climate. It's always changed. It has always been changing. But here's something that you're leaving out. We have been coming out of an ice age for 12,000 years. Is that true or false? You know, based on the evidence that we've done in archaeology, I would say, I guess it's an assessment because you'd have to, but there's a shit ton of facts to support it. You know, the, core, the, the ice core samples and the water levels and all this other stuff supports that we've been coming out of an ice age for the last 12,000 years. Go ahead, Cameron. This is, uh, this is kind of random, but still on the same subject. But uh, people who argue against those grounded statements, uh, I like to call them Russian bots. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and typically they're not actually arguing. And typically they're not even actually arguing your points. 
Yeah, they, yeah they're, they're just attacking you personally. Yeah, exactly. They resort to ad hominem attacks and just like foolish childlike tactics. But if but once you yeah. can identify them, you can call them out on it. You go, oh, okay, so you want to attack me, but you ain't got nothing against my argument. <laughs> like, I know I'm not a bigot. Call me whatever you want. What have you got against my argument? What have you got that goes up against my assessment? What facts do Mic you drop. have that can contradict Mic drop. Exactly, yeah. But you, but you have to be able to identify the language, the language that they're using, and how you use your language is extremely important. And, and not falling into their, not falling into the trap that they're doing. Because if we do the same thing they do, then it's just a bunch of fucking nonsense. If you start making uh, false assertions or you start making ungrounded assessments and you start saying, well, my truth, and you start doing ad hominem attacks on them and not addressing their quote unquote arguments, well, then nothing's happening. And it's just a bunch of nonsense. And it's just a bunch of fucking idiots. And that's in, in, Sad to say, I've seen a lot of that. <laughs> like you have these polarized groups of people who are just throwing nonsense at each other. You know, um, now, again, not to say there aren't competent people out there who are actually making valid arguments and who are making well-grounded assessments and who are making distinct assertions, but they're not the common people. We need to start learning to use these tools for ourselves so that it becomes a universal front because this is how we move towards truth is being able to recognize it in our own language and being able to recognize it in the language of others. And I think, I think that's a good place to end. Any questions? Anywhere else uh, we want to go with this? Yeah. Let me throw one more thing in there because um, I have noticed that, even if I'm dealing with a very intellectual or um, smart, I'll say, person, and I bring up some of the, you know, the, <laughs> I'm like, what you're saying is not a fact. That's your opinion. And it's not backed by any type of facts. So, oh, well, of course it's backed by fact. All my friends believe it too. <laughs> okay. So that's their belief. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's what I'm getting into. It's because it's what happens is they have oftentimes I've noticed that people don't have an understanding of this distinction, which is why we're having a conversation about it tonight so that people right. that, that are on and that can listen to it later have that distinction and be present to when somebody is fighting tooth and nail against it. Because I have had people like laugh at me and yell at me and be like, you're telling me that if everybody on the planet all believes the same thing that it's not truth it's not a fact i'm like exactly there's a difference here. <laughs> and they'll double down and they feel attacked and it ends up in the same type of throwing useless language and and attacks and whatever back and forth and it's not productive but there are ways to be productive in those situations and not like not be stuck in the left brain need to be right in a situation right. And right. blending these two together is incredibly important. Just understanding the language that you're using and where you're coming from in the conversation to me is probably the most impactful way to engage any conversation out there. So if you're clear on what you're saying and you're not just throwing around useless opinions that aren't backed ungrounded assessments and 
you're clear as to where you're coming from. If you're open to, you know, being a beginner and learning and, you know, walking through thought processes with people, as opposed to, I know all the information you're wrong, I'm right. And I need to stand my ground and defend myself. They're two entirely different places to be. And you create two entirely different experiences and results in your life. It's, it's drastic, the change there. But I think that's important to speak into before we, before we wrap up. Yeah. And of course, and, and, and again, there's always the practices that will allow you to enter into that floodlight consciousness that, that, uh, that show, that Shoshin, you know, that beginner mind, that, uh, intuitive mind, that contextual mind, right? That, that part of your mind that is in the question as opposed to, I know. Um, and, and that actually takes a, a, a strong sense of self-worth as well, because again, part of your programming and growing up was to have the answer right away. Somebody asks a question, you answer the question. And being able to be confident in the like, well, let me consider your point for a moment. You know, being able to just like really kick back and think, like really consider it, like ask yourself the question, hmm, is there any, is there any validity to what they're saying? Is this a statement that can, is this an assertion that can be proven true or false? Is this an assessment? Can I ground this assessment? Can they ground this assessment? How would I go about grounding this assessment if I wanted to? You know, so you're, you're in that discovery mode. You're in that floodlight consciousness. This is where it's interesting because this is where you're, if I were to cut you off from your right brain, your IQ would drop dramatically. But if I were to cut you off from your left brain, it wouldn't drop that much, you know, because that for one, the IQ test is, you know, basically the gist of it, it's pattern recognition. So you're, you're the, that floodlight consciousness can recognize patterns. It gets, it gets context. It sees how things fit together and how they interrelate. Um, and the left brain can't do that. So that higher IQ aspect of yourself is when you integrate and you balance that floodlight consciousness with the spotlight consciousness. And again, we talked about earlier, meditation is a great way to shut up the monkey mind right? The spotlight consciousness. <clears throat> that's what you're doing. You're practicing quieting the monkey. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the gist of what meditation is. Because um, if, if you can quiet the monkey and practice quieting the monkey, it's easier for you to step into that beginner mind. It becomes easier and easier for you to go into that contemplative state where you can see the bigger picture. You can see the interrelatedness of things. You know, you don't have to be right so you can solve the problem. You could figure it out. That's the critical thinking. That's the sweet yep. spot for critical thinking. That's the sweet spot. And I would throw in that uh, presence is an extraordinary practice for this. And that you can do that in meditation as well. And, and for me, I've noticed 
if I'm present to any opportunity I have to learn something about myself, about other people, about the topic that we're talking about, um, then I don't inherently have like a need to defend myself or to convince somebody or, you know, to win an argument or anything like that, because I'm not there for those things. I'm there to learn something. And if I know the topic inside and out, and I'm not finding much to learn in the conversation, then, you know, I get to learn something about myself or the other person, or I get to just quiet down and listen and, you know, superimpose myself into their position and see if I can see life through their eyes, through their, you know, their perspective. And like, why, what would have me believe everything that they believe? What would it take? And, you know, to me, it's, it's a very powerful way of connecting with somebody, even if you know, you're not agreeing on whatever the conversation is. You know, I right. and, you're actually, and you're more likely to have a lot more impact with what you have to say, because if you, again, if you're relying on that left side, right, that where the ego resides, right, the spotlight consciousness, if you rely on that side, when you're engaging people like this, and you're having these kinds of conversations, there will be a tendency to, to insult, to deride, because again, the, the ego, the left, the left brain, the monkey brain, the spotlight, it does not like to be wrong. In fact, it thinks it's never wrong. It thinks it knows everything. So it has this tendency that if and when challenged to insult, to deride, to, you know, to, it, it's, it's, it's protecting itself, right? Um, so I think what you just explained is a great way to approach any and all discussions and conversations, because especially if it's going to be one with contention in it, because you, you won't necessarily go to that place of insulting and deriding and, and, and they're more likely to hear what you have to say. If you're not doing what they so often do, the strategy of attack the messenger, right? Attack the individual as opposed to their argument or assessments. You don't want to attack their, person either right you don't want to attack them as an individual right you don't you don't want to have the ad hominem attacks because that's and that comes straight from the left brain because the left brain starts to freak out when it doesn't know so you have to allow yourself to take a deep breath and go you know what let me consider your point for a moment you know let me hmm that's interesting what you say you know i wonder if you know and you at you can even ask yourself out loud you know um or ask yourself within, you know, is there is there any validity to this? And what are they what are they what are they trying to say here? You know, um, because that's going to open up that other side, right? That's going to allow you to get some inroads into that floodlight consciousness, into the broad awareness, into that contextual, you know, perspective where you can kind of see how everything and anything fits together and how everything interrelates. When you do speak, you'll end up speaking to where they're at and not to where you're at. Meeting them in language that is much more easily understood by them. And, and I did want to say that I've got a working theory that like if I was born in somebody else's 
life and lived every experience they had lived from their perspective, that I would probably have reached the same conclusions and the same type of work as them, if not really similar. So I tend to try to give people the benefit of the doubt and thinking like they're doing the best that they, they can do with what they've got. And I just happen to have different distinctions, different experiences, and I'm doing the best that I can do with where, what I've got. And that for me levels the mental playing field of like, Hey, we're both bringing the best that we got to this. And <laughs> you know, what can I leverage and where can I meet them and how can we connect here? But I got cut you off twice, Nick. Did you want to say something? I want to say too, um, now that, now that I've got teenagers and now that I've trained them up with a lot of these theories, going toe to toe with kids who honestly, I think the, I think the distillation of the uh, right brain of the critical thinking is a kid teaching a kid something and the kid saying, Hey, wait a minute. And then coming up with something completely new and original, maybe it's asinine, maybe it doesn't work, but they're thinking outside of the box of thinking out of context. And, and when these folks, when you talk to folks and I tend to avoid it because I'm kind of persona non grata. My my skin's transparent. I've got blue eyes, so I can't speak to this stuff in a lot of ways. I kind of pick my battles when it comes to this. But my kids are facing it sometimes, too. And what I've noticed is that, to Brandon's earlier points, these folks are childish and not childlike. There's And there's a, there's a distinction there. Um, and the best – and like, – Again, to his earlier point, the best example of that is their ad hominem attacks. And what I found that when it comes when it comes to dealing with folks who come at you full bore, um, a lot of times it's not a great idea to point out the logical fallacies because then you're you know you're you know showing your Mensa card and you're speaking about things that they've not gone over. You know your logical fallacy is they've they've not gone over any of this stuff. So when you say you're ad hominem or you point these things out, sometimes it's it doesn't make a lot of progress but what i have found is when deal, dealing with these, with these folks when they're acting childish dealing with them the same way i dealt with my children so like if somebody says oh yeah well you're a racist and you point out well oh yeah we're your poopy head you know it's if you deal with them with comedy or with something surprising or out of the blue out of the box uh floodlight right they're going to see that as it's going to be a shock first of all and second of all it's going to be funny and third of all they're going to be like i can't believe he called me that and then as they ruminate on it later on, they realize that they were doing exactly the same thing. Or when a kid's pouting. In, in, in my house, if a kid pouts, I'm going to make them laugh. Or I'm going to point out how silly they sound in a loving way. And I think, I think that that's often the best way. And sometimes, because um, I, I have a lot of these friends. I mean, I was, in, I was in network TV for a while. And I still do hang out with some of these people. I consider them my friends. And they're very much on this train and but i love them all and sometimes it's best to let them vent and go crazy and say what they have to say and then kind of subvert a little memes jokes fun because i'm not if i'm doing that i'm just being silly and then it's wonderful to see the gears start turning in their mind and hear them start kind of making fun of the whole movement and joking around too because some somewhere in there if they're reasonably intelligent they know it's dumb and you know a kid pouting because they don't get what they want and then you kind of nudging them and making them laugh or smile it changes the mood and it changes uh it changes the argument you're not the enemy you're just you know you 
you did something silly, let's all laugh about it. And of course, be willing to laugh about yourself in the same way. Actually opens up that floodlight consciousness. It opens up that right side of the brain because there is the left side does not get humor. It's like I said, it takes everything absolutely literally. So if you can actually get people into a playful mood or into a humorous space, you've opened up, you've broadened that bandwidth to the right brain. Right. It kind of reminds me of there's this, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but it's one of my friends who was on here earlier. She told me this joke about this, like the difference between men and women and how they think. And she was like, the wife asked the husband, hey, I need you to go to the store and I need you to buy um, a carton of milk. Oh, and if they have eggs, I want you to get uh, a dozen. And so he came back with a dozen cartons of milk. (laughs) Because for the way that she was communicating was like, if they have eggs, new context, get a dozen of those eggs. And for him, so logical, didn't get the context, was thinking she wants me to get a case of milk. And if they have eggs, she wants me to get six cases of milk. The whole conversation is about milk. Got it. (laughs) It's like a perfect description of the two different, uh, basically, you know, conversation with context and conversation without context. Left and right brain. Yeah. Yep. There's a... There's a book uh, that's um, the Oxford comma joke. That's there's a book called uh, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, and it's on the cover. It's a pen. It's about how to write and how where you know where to place a comma, and it, and um, depending on where you place the comma, a panda is either a uh, go either you know eats, shoots, and leaves you know uh, bamboo. Or it, you know, goes into a restaurant and murders everybody. It eats, shoots, and leaves, right? But it depends on how you write it. And I think being present to a conversation with somebody who's – more often than not, a lot of these folks we talk to are passionate about it. And they're – I don't want to say the foot soldiers of this, but they're the people on the ground. They're the people who have bought it. They're not the paper writers. They're not the people where we have to wonder at their, uh, their intent, Right. They're the people who genuinely believe that the system's geared against certain people, or they genuinely believe that they've had this ex- that they've had this experience and it's scientifically valid. But being able to point things out like that, you know, buying a dozen cartons of milk, yeah, do it. Go be there and be ready. Be ready to laugh at what they say, not at them. You know, laugh laugh next to them, not at them. Right? <laughs> that's I for me. That's been key. I mean, I. I've got some really funny stories to tell about about that, and it's 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 saved my bacon a couple times uh, because in my industry, it's it's that's a dangerous it's for me it's a dangerous place to be, right? I have to. There are a lot of ways. I I'm sorry, I get to uh, <laughs> deal with some of these folks, and, <laughs> and I I have to kind of censor it. But I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to cow, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to self-flagellate here and, and, and bemoan my, my, my color or my situation, you know, but there are things I can't say outright. I, there are things I can say in my, in, in the family, in the company of my, of my family, right? But there are things I can't say with, with folks I, you know, I, I work with or I play with in some cases. 
Yeah, I would say it definitely takes a strategic approach because I don't think that being silent is necessarily, again, it depends where your morals and ethics lie, you know, but being silent is, is in a way supporting it because you're not speaking against it. You're not contradicting it. But like I said, being very strategic is important. And like in that scenario, your approach to humor is probably the best way to approach it until you've made the inroads to where they're actually open to new ideas. Right. Discretion is the better form of, is, is the better part of valor. I mean, it, in, in my case, my, you know, my, my livelihood doesn't necessarily depend on it. Uh, some of my friendships do. And honestly, in, in some cases, may, maybe a friendship isn't worth keeping. And, but to me, it's speaking, they're speaking up, they're standing up and, you know, getting shot. There's being a hero, right? And then there's, you know, helping somebody come to a conclusion. Sometimes it's as simple as letting people vent, you know, and they'll recognize something they said that was completely insane. And you see in their face and you just let them, let them, pro sometimes people process things externally and just be there to pat them on the back and say, are you, you okay now, buddy? <laughs> Is it, are there racists? <laughs> Are there other racists in the room right now? Like to kind of, kind of, you know, let let them hear it themselves. Sometimes is is an, another great way. Just sit and listen. Just just let them vent. And with that, we are complete. All right, y'all. I appreciate everyone's contributions. I appreciate everyone's presence. Thank you for the discussion. I feel I'm a better man because of it. My understanding has been fleshed out and made uh, better because of it. And uh, I'll talk to you all very soon.